0: So this afternoon, we're going to talk about topics related to purification of mind, mainly.
1: We should start first in in saying that we've shifted our seats because this is a practice of being at ease and comfortable. And uh, (laughs) we both had some back issues and we're having some today, so we've gone to chairs and invite anybody else who needs to sit in a chair to do so.
0: So, um... We thought we'd start with talking about the differences between samatha practice and vipassana, and what is being cultivated, and um, what are we really doing in each of the practices, and they're very complementary. So um, the terminology... First of all, in both both practices, we're being mindful. So, in the West, the term mindfulness has come to almost be applied to a whole practice of vipassana, whereas really, with if you look in Buddhism, the the word mindful, being mindful, really is about um, being aware of your object of meditation, whatever that is, whether it's the present moment or in the samatha practice it's really the breath as it's crossing the anapana spot so we're still mindful in this practice it's just that we're mindful of this one object to the exclusion of everything else so again we're just coming back to the same object over and over as many times as our awareness is pulled off and and going to other things we just keep returning to that that one object and In this, really, we're cultivating something different than in Vipassana. So in the Samatha practice, what we're cultivating is a capacity to not be um, at the mercy of our conditioning. So we're cultivating the capacity, you could even say, of being disinterested in our story, in the ways we normally know ourselves, we're cultivating a less compulsiveness in going to those things over and over. So every time, you know, we're trying to be with the breath as it's crossing the anapana spot and something comes up and pulls us away and we come back. So in that act of coming back to the object, we're actually deconditioning our normal habituated patterning. So this is part of what we're really doing, this is why having such a, a narrow, specific object is cultivating that particular muscle in a, in a way that's very targeted. Whereas in Vipassana, well, we're cultivating many different things also, but one of the main things we're cultivating is an ability to be with whatever's arising, which is also very important. So in our experiences, as Vipassana goes on, I mean, it starts with the breath, but really in Vipassana, Ultimately, whatever is arising in the mind stream becomes, um, we can become non reactive to it. And then, you know, whenever that dissipates, then we can come back and, and rest on the breath as a primary object. But there's a way that we're really cultivating a capacity to be with things as they are which is also very important. But you can see these are not the same thing. We're not cultivating the identical thing. In in the Samatha, of course, we are cultivating a capacity to be with things because we're really seeing our conditioning, you know, in a strong way. And in Vipassana, we are, of course, cultivating concentration. So it's not like they're mutually exclusive, but the focus is a little different. So we like to think of it like, um, like physical exercise this is exercise for our consciousness like the brahma viharas are cultivating the wholesome qualities of the heart so even though those are concentration practices they're different than anapanasati but you can see there's there's a relatedness so with physical exercise there's strength training there's cardio there's pilates there's you know there's all different kinds of physical Exercise, which are all good for us. I mean, doing any one of them is going to be beneficial, but they aren't the same. Each of them is cultivating something in particular. And that's really what it is like with meditation practices. So, in the Samatha practice, we're really part of what we're really cultivating is that ability to turn away and to not be so compelled by the thinking that captures us much or most of the time. So this is one way of looking at the two practices. Another is that in the Samatha practice, it's a very inward practice. Um, We're focused on a very small object, for one thing. So the awareness is, you know, as that unification of mind happens, with the flashlight going down to the laser beam, there's less and less, we're not... um, the awareness isn't being drawn as much to a broad array of things. Although a lot of times when people are doing concentration practice, uh, and say they they eat a meal, it can taste amazingly, you know, wonderful. And and those senses are still coming in, but in in some ways the perception, the sense door has been cleansed. But we're not necessarily turning towards those things in the same way we might be with vipassana. So as we go in this inward. Um, trajectory, our awareness really starts going in some ways back to the, um, its source. And we're orienting more, instead of orienting towards materiality and mentality in the way that we normally know the world and ourselves, we're really turning away from that and turning towards our true nature in a really um, explicit way. So every time we're doing that, there's, there's a whole chain of things. We won't get into this today because we just don't. It's not really appropriate for a day long. But um, if you look at the progress of consciousness as it experiences the various levels of the jhanas, all the way through the first four jhanas are basically the what they call the, the, the form jhanas. So they are in form. So the objects and the other things that we're working with have to do more with form you know their colors and and the breath is something in form the upper jhanas from six to eight are formless and, and they even sometimes call them formless realms they're sort of a whole different category but ultimately that traces all the way back to the unconditioned so we can really as we're turning in this practice towards that unconditioned mystery, which we can't really talk about because it is unconditioned and words are conditioned and they sort of don't ever really capture that mystery. <coughs> um, we're orienting our consciousness to this unconditioned reality, which really ultimately is kind of the uh, what compels us to meditate and to spiritual practice for many people. That is why we're doing it, is to know that directly for ourselves. So there's an orienting towards that, that the breath, you know, the breath itself is a mystery. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it goes. But we know the difference between a, a live person and a dead person because one's breathing and one isn't. So there, you know, there's something in that mystery of just turning towards this unconditioned source of our own nature and of the manifestation really of everything in existence that uh, we can't conceptualize, but we can know in our own experience. Um, that the Samatha practice in particular is really orienting us towards, is to turn away from how we normally know ourselves and the world and turning towards that source of everything. So there's a certain kind of um, penetration that can happen with the laser-like awareness and also with the inwardness of the practice that is somewhat specific to the Samatha. Whereas with Vipassana, we are you know, and if you look at how this the pra- this series of practice was laid out, say, like, in, in some of the teachings, there's a, a thinking that we we need to clean out our consciousness enough so that we can actually turn that purified consciousness towards Vipassana and towards the manifest reality in our own thoughts without being reactive. So, you know, there's a quote, I didn't bring my thick stack of quotes today, but um, there's a quote from, um, I believe it's Bhikkhu Bodhi, Mm -hmm. that talks about how it's really only with a purified mind that's free from the hindrances that we can really have insight. So so the Samatha practice is really purifying that mind stream that is always with us. It's really taking, um, through this returning, we're deconditioning our um, compulsion towards our thinking patterns and kind of purifying some of that out of the system so that when we then want to use that mind stream for other things, it's available. And and also just having that direct experience of the purified mind is extremely healing. You know, it's it's, even if it's just a taste here and there of our true nature, um, it's... It's a motivation to continue. It's um, a different way of understanding what we are that's beyond our normal everyday lives. So there's a lot of (coughs) compelling things about the Samatha practice in itself. It's not just a means to an end. Um, It's actually doing something that's really worthwhile in itself. Whereas like in the Vipassana then, we take this purified mind stream and turn it towards really understanding phenomena in a way that is allows for us to potentially break through our normal perceptions of things. So that really is more of a permeating, our awareness is permeating our normal understanding of our own, our own thinking and our own um, perceptions of reality around us. So this is where the purification of mind versus purification of view comes in. And there's really a lot to be said for spending some time really uh, doing a practice that allows our consciousness to become more pure, uh, both for its own sake and for the effect it has on other practices.
1: Uh, also in, in this vein, sometimes people will ask questions about the purification of mind and that the becoming more neutral from our normal patterning and triggering there's concern about, well, am I going to be able to keep my job and keep in relationships? And uh, am I going to know a traffic light, what that is? <laughs> and, and there's still a function, there's still an intelligence, that doesn't go away. But there's just the, the compulsive side of it, the side where, and, and we all know this about ourselves, where certain situations happen and there's a reaction without any consideration or thinking Of what's appropriate here. There's just, there's like an old reaction. And that's more what we're talking about, is that gets deconditioned by it losing its energy, its pull over us, where then all of a sudden, what people report back to us is they're seeing choices where no choices existed before, where there was only one way and now there's two ways or three ways to make a decision. So that's really the part of the freedom of the unfolding of liberation in the Buddhist path. One of the ways that we talk about the purification of mind uh, that's a little bit more tangible is uh, we talk about it as what we call the surf zone. And this all started... Tina was a certified scuba diver some years ago and did lots of dives, including beach dives. And you've all seen this on the beaches here in California. People will get all the gear on, and then, of course, they start walking backwards into the ocean. And we just really like this metaphor because there's a way where, with this practice, we're focusing here on the Anapana spout, on the breath, moving in the Anupana spot. And there's a way where our, our back is turned to what's going to come up within our mind, within our experience. We don't actually know. So the idea of waves coming from behind seemed very appropriate. And the way we sort of envision this and work with this is it's like if we're starting with the, we're on the beach, you know, all our gear is set, we start backing in, and initially those waves are quite small. They're really at sort of ankle height and these are the things of, you know, a number of you have talked about things like um, feeling the, the striving or, or wanting to know exactly how to work with different reactions. And so it's kind of the initial wave of, the initial push of resistance that people experience. That's, we sort of associate those with the littler waves. And the more we keep coming back to the object and making that election those waves become less of a problem. And then we continue our walk back into the ocean, and these waves get a little bigger. And uh, along the line somewhere, we start getting settled with ourselves, and we start realizing all the environmental distractions. Oh my God, are these people noisy? Is the door loud? Is the wind too strong? Um, we were told about some concentration retreat where a yogi went to the retreat manager and asked if they could get the planes to stop flying overhead. <laughs> and so they were finding it very distracting that those planes would go. And the retreat manager said, I'm sorry we don't have control over that here. Uh, you have to have to just you know, include that in your, in your meditation. So, but the, the, the things, it's really the, the external places were getting pulled most often. And by returning to the object again, uh, the breath crossing, the anapanasati, spot, we can settle and we can not be triggered so much by these, we we get a lessening of their impact, and it continue our journey into the ocean, and and so it really becomes where there's different sort of wave sets that we can meet, and what's really great about this practice, and we hear this a lot from people is it's really a simple practice. I mean, you you're really focused. Uh, we used to go to our teacher, the Sido, for interviews. A lot of times, you report this whole thing, and the Sido says. Focus here, pointing to the Anapanasa <laughs> spot, next. And this was the instruction. And and we've had people after some of the retreats we've done come to us and said, You know, focus here is a really good instruction. <laughs> you say, Well, we well, can yeah, really
0: shorten our Dharma talks we, up we quite can a, shorten lot, huh? a lot.
1: <laughs> but but there's a whole context, you know, we're, we're really, a lot's going on, a lot's coming up. And if we can skillfully work with these things, it's really helpful. And so it, it just continues. And at some point, it continues with enough stability. and Tina talked about the concentration deepening. We're starting with a momentary, which is right near the shore, and getting more towards access is maybe where we're waist-deep. And then we move out to the deep water, which still is access, but there's a lot of stillness, and the thinking slows, if not stops, where thoughts are very random, very, very light. And at some point when it's appropriate, there's a sense of, of being called to a deep dive, which is more the absorption or jhana. So there is that that uh, progression, but it's sometimes it's easier to to conceptualize thinking of it this way as the surf zone and going into the ocean. The question. As a California
2: girl, um, I was raised to never turn around in the ocean. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh-huh. I'm having a little bit of trouble with the Right. <laughs> well, if you're a scuba diver, you're probably going to trip over your fins, <laughs> your, your your fins and fall down. So that's why we use the scuba gear. Because it forces you to do it that way. Yeah, and some people do have to confront. We had somebody who had a, a concern about that, and someone else had a little fear of water. So we suggested they work on another metaphor that worked <laughs> for them. But, but, but there is a certain amount of trust. And, and really, this is the way our practice is. We don't know what's going to come up. We never do. So there's a way that this is, this is just one metaphor for it.
0: Um, yeah so this is really the 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 whole surf zone the idea of working with the hindrances this is really a way of holding what's happening with the hindrances because we all know that the you know we sit down to meditate and the first thing that happens is we can't we can't do it you know i my mom my parents are so sweet and they've you know, read our book and all of this, and I'm really interested in my mom. Yeah, I tried to meditate, but I couldn't do it. So I said to her, well, what happened? Well, I was just thinking the whole time. So there's a tendency to think that if we're not just on the object completely, and it's easy, and and that's, it's just, every meditation is one blissful moment after another that we're not doing it. But actually, the hindrances are, that is the surf zone. and. The, the opportunity to um, actually build this muscle is part of the practice. So if you're encountering hindrances, this is part of the practice. We have to think of this as we are actually doing something useful when the hindrances are arising and we are coming back to the object. It's not like we're not doing it right or that nothing's happening. This is part of the purification of mind itself. And, and there is the potential to go out into those deeper waters where there's uh, some subsiding of that, at least temporarily, and we can experience more of our true nature directly without so much of that. Do you um, do this, it's momentary, the first one, momentary? Yeah, yeah, momentary concentration is first.
2: Do you do that all the time or just when you're meditating? Like when I'm walking down the road, do you, I mean, I'm, I'm, well, that's a bad one because I was meditating there, but... Um, but if you're on a train platform or someplace, do you constantly focus on this place? Yeah, so
0: the question is, is, it, is can one do that where you're on the object all the time throughout life? And yes, uh, that is a possibility. If that is something that one wants to do, to have some continuity of that throughout the day is absolutely possible. Just like in Vipassana, being more in touch with your movements and what's arising in the moment, and so on. So with this, the continuity of practice in daily life, if you wanted to take that on, and to try and be with the objects hum throughout the day, that is absolutely an option. Yeah.
2: Go ahead. What's your sense of the usefulness in practice to view it developmentally,
1: where like for months or even years, you might focus on the samatha practices and then move more into the vipassana, versus alternating versus, you the three days uh, with the uh, Anapana and the rest with Vipassana?
2: I mean, just in terms of how to, how to work through it together.
1: So the question is about the development of the practices, the Samatha and Vipassana, whether to do it uh, one long period of time, for example, with the Samatha, then Vipassana, doing it sometimes where it's done uh, in shorter term, could be a few days. Some people even ask about doing it in the same meditation. They'll do the... Concentration for some period and then switch. And first off, it's really a personal choice. You know, we're really big advocates, and everyone is the master of their own ship, the captain of their own ship. They get to decide what makes sense for their own journey and their own unfolding. But that being said, there is something, and we're, you know, part of the feedback we're getting from students is that they're finding having. Uh, blocks of time, some and it, that depends what that means. Whether it's a month or some people have been doing it for several years at a time, they're finding some benefit to it. So it really depends upon you and what you feel sort of called to do and what what makes sense um, for you to do.
0: Yeah, we usually suggest that people do a, pe- a period of a month or two, or you know, we have people who have been doing the samatha practice for a few years, just the way that a lot of people have done vipassana for a number of years. So it's really, you know, it's really your call. But we don't recommend switching every day or doing something different because it's hard for a practice to deepen when we're just sort of hopping all over the place.
1: And, and we're not big advocates for switching in the same meditation either for the same reason. That it, it really, there can be some benefit, but it really doesn't allow a deep dive with either.
0: Yeah, the only real exception would be like maybe to do five minutes of metta at the beginning of a sitting. Right. We, we, that can be a skillful Practice, in our opinion, yeah, we, and
1: we do recommend yeah. that to some people. For some people, it really works. Yeah.
0: So I think you know we should probably go on and maybe save the questions for. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. We, we had one more, but okay. going Well, do we have about six oh, do we? more. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
2: I actually have practiced meta. Have practiced meta for many years, and I think this is interesting because I found myself called to needing something quieter, and I didn't realize that metta would be considered a concentration, kind of under the umbrella of, um, but the quietness really of of what I was hoping to find here today uh, was definitely calling me. I
1: don't know if you
2: can speak to that
1: at all. Are you finding some quiet with it?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm finding not having to
1: repeat the phrases over and over. Right. Sure.
0: So her her comment was that um, with the metta, she's really happy to see that this is a concentration practice and that there's a settling, and you're finding that today as well. Yeah. Good. So... um, so then we've been talking about purification of mind in some different ways and, and the differences between Samatha and Vipassana and some ways of thinking about the hindrances as they're happening, not so much as a bad thing, but as a natural part of the practice of really uh, facing them to whatever extent. And, and in the Samatha, we do go through the surf zone like a, a, a scuba diver. Once you're out there, you just go right through it as as quickly as you can to uh, sort of free the mind from this habituated thinking but what really is then purification of mind and how do we what do we mean when we talk about that we've sort of been pointing to it but there are some ways of thinking about it directly and you know this is probably the part of our our talks that evolves the most is this section and we're thinking about it these days as um, in the context of transformation versus transcendence. So there's really two aspects of what's happening in this practice in terms of purification of mind. One from the side of, of the personality and working through the hindrances and the surf zone is that as we, um, as we get to see our conditioning more, there's the possibility of being able to have some freedom and let go of that. It's like this hot coal that you know, sometimes gets talked about that only when we really see it in our hand can we let go of it. When we're going along our lives every day, we don't really notice sometimes how compulsive this is until we sit down and meditate, and then we realize, oh my gosh, this is going on all the time. This is going on every day, all day. It's just that now that I'm meditating, I actually know what it is that's going on every day, all day. So there's, you know, this is the first noble truth, really, is that there's suffering. And that whenever things aren't perfect, the way that we want them to be, we suffer. And that this is an inherent part of life. So we really get to see that, that aspect of the first noble truth in sort of glaring obviousness when we sit. And then there's the possibility to start getting some space from continuing to do that, to start disidentifying from the patterning and to see that, number one, it's causing suffering, Whereas most of humanity does will never know that, doesn't even have the opportunity to know that because they don't meditate and they don't have a chance to see it. We do, we have that opportunity. And there's the chance to start deconditioning that and to get some space so that when circumstances arise, we aren't just compulsively reacting out of habits that are so deeply ingrained that we can't do anything about it. So there's an actual transformation that's possible within our conditioned experience of the personality. There can be additional freedom that wasn't present before. And we really see this with, you know, I mean, this is why people come to Spirit Rock for 30 years in a row, because something's happening. Something's actually beneficial. You know, there's some increased freedom. So in in this practice, which is really focusing on our, our internal mind state, um, we've really seen that a lot of people that we've worked with over time have... Um, gain freedom from habits that they've had for their whole lives, 20 or 30 years, even people who practice Vipassana but haven't necessarily gotten the freedom because there's there's a cutting through where we can actually see... Um, are patterning with greater clarity with the Samatha because of the concentration. That's really how it's different in some ways than Vipassana, because of course we see our conditioning in Vipassana too. But the concentration gives us a clarity that isn't always present otherwise. So that's the, the transformational side. And then there's, so this is really the side on the personality. And then there's the transcendent side, which is the opportunity as the hindrances start to subside and what Stephen's going to talk about is the jhana factors, they start to increase, then um, there's the possibility of really experiencing the transcendent aspect of the practice where we're going beyond what we normally know ourselves to be and we can get a direct taste of that, like the Buddha said, you know, know it for yourself. And as, those, as the hindrances drop and we've you know, gotten through the surf zone and start getting out there, not that it may not come up again, but there's, there is an opportunity to really directly experience our, our nature that's underneath all of this compulsive thinking. And that is really a priceless opportunity because we, when we've experienced that, we know this is like the most real thing I've ever experienced in my life. And this is what I am underneath all of this this is what I am and that in itself purifies the mind stream so these are the two different ways that it can happen and I won't go through all the, the quotes we've you know we done a lot of research on what others have to say about this but like the actual word jhana comes from a word um, japeti, which at it's very basic root means to burn up so there is a way that this practice, when we really start, um, when the concentration starts increasing, it starts actually burning up the hindrances and the defilement patterns. So there's this, you know, you think about what is purification, purification in some ways, it's a burning up of all of these uh, this baggage that's gotten accumulated in our consciousness. And some of that, of course, even after a really intense retreat, Some of this is going to come back as the concentration wanes, but that's true of any practice. But there's some that doesn't come back. And we talk about this as, like, what did you get to discard, you know, at the end of a retreat? Um, Are there parts that you came in with that you don't have to leave with? And maybe new things that you've picked up that are more wholesome that you can leave with and become integrated into your life. So... The other the other aspect of how can we look at purification of mind is the actual abating of the hindrances and the increasing of the jhana factors. So, as as concentration develops, um, we may notice that there are periods where the hindrances aren't present or they're very weak compared to what they usually are, and at the same time, there's an inverse relationship with what's called the jhana factors, and these are the wholesome states of mind that are that are there just waiting to come out underneath all of, our, all of our crazy thinking. And this is really, these are aspects of our true nature that, again, when we experience them, it's not like we have to go out and get them. So just like concentration, I, I don't think I've said this before when I was talking about it, but concentration isn't something we have to go out and get. It's an innate aspect of the mind stream. So it's just like this muscle. If I'm lifting weights, I don't have to go out and get the muscle. I just haven't used the muscle. So it's that concentration and these other states that are inherent to our mindstream are already there. It's just that they haven't been cultivated and they're covered over by a lot of our conditioned patterning. So as the hindrances start to drop, the jhana factors... Which Stephen's going to talk about start to arise, and that's another way that we can understand purification of minus when we start experiencing that natural luminosity of our awareness that's that's already there.
1: So, so the jhana factors. I'll go through them. What they are? Um, there's five jhana factors. I'll name them first and talk about each one. Uh, the Pali names is vitaka which we uh, like the translation of applied attention, vichara, which is sustained attention, piti, which is normally translated as joy, sukha, which is normally translated as bliss, and ekagata, which is one-pointedness. Now the first one, vitaka, is one you already know. That's the coming back to the object again and again a million times. So this is the, the choice to come back to the object, that's the first jhana factor. It's just developing that. Once that we return often enough and there's more resting, there's, we're resting more times than we're bringing it back, we can start looking at and seeing the development of consistency, which is really more the vichara. It's a, it's a sustaining. So we're, we're staying with the object for periods of time, maybe short periods of time, but we we can tell we're starting to land there more and there's a little bit of ease and then we find the awareness away, we bring it back so that's the uh, vichara and vichara develops to where, as Tina was mentioning, there's a real clear sustaining, staying on the object for you know, minutes uh, eventually, can be hours uh, and longer so it, it It really is a developing, it sort of is a range for for the uh, bichara. Piti, again, is translated normally as joy, and really there's a kind of a range there where it can be very joyful, but it it goes up to uh, rapture. Is really that sort of one quality of it. And the rapture is more physical. It's more like a, a bodily felt physicalness. And most people, when they hear about rapture, they think, oh... You know, sign me up for that. I'd like that, <laughs> that, that that body stuff. And what happens is, there's a way that the rapture really has a quality of purification, almost of, of energy in the body, because it really can be, for some people, it can create a lot of movement sometimes and a real, you know, kind of churning energy. And typically, on a treat, if someone is experiencing this, you know, there's a little pattern they go through where they come in and Oh my goodness! I've got this PT and it's just glorious, and I'm (laughs) I'm rapturous, and you know it's just incredible. And then about a day later, they come in and they're like, "When is this going to stop? I can't (laughs) stand this anymore." (laughs) And of course, it's too much. And and they're really the system is getting purified, but there's a way, like anything, where it's just you know we, we actually want the smoothness. And so for these people, there is a period of time, and that does calm down without exception. But it's like their system needs that shakedown cruise sort of experience with the PT. And usually from there on after for them, it's it's more in the joy range rather than the rapture. So we don't, you know, if the rapture is what someone's experiencing, that's we we work with, we don't discourage it, but it sometimes ends up being too much of a good thing or it feels that way. And then suka is the next jhana factor. And Sukha again, translated mostly as bliss. And it's really almost a better a better use of the term or translation to talk about happiness it's a kind of just bubbly effervescent um, it, and normally it's the way these are piti and sukha are divided is pt is seen as a body experience so it's really body centered and the sukha typically is mental it's really in the head so it's really kind of this of of effervescence. you know if you open up a bottle of carbonated liquid in that you know that first escape of gas and bubbles, it's sort of like that mentally. so it's light and it's joyful up there and it just feels really wonderful and these all have again have sort of ranges from where there's sort of a very small sensation to where they can feel very, very intense and over the course of the, the concentration developing from momentary to access to absorption. These will; they, They're not uniform. They sort of fluctuate as they do, based on the person. And then eventually, as access gets deeper, they start stabilizing at a higher level. And then the fifth jhana um, factor is ekagata, which is one-pointedness. And one-pointedness is a little bit difficult to talk about. The, the quality, the experience of it, is there's a kind of locking on and the way that people will talk about it is being with the object the breath crossing the anapanasati spot they're locked on the object so securely that they almost feel like they couldn't unlock if they wanted to it just has that it, it's more than sustaining it's just there's there's almost a quality of a snap on it just you know really locks on and then it's really easy to be present with the object and that's really where the other jhana factors start deepening because if there's really a lot less needing to return and return and return, if there's just that deep sustaining and the locked-on quality, then the PT and the sukha really can increase. And this starts moving into the deeper, you know, in our surf zone, that's way out in the deep water where it's still and really quiet and uh, calm and, and such. And the progression is for the first jhana that all five of these jhana factors are present. And that's part of the awareness in the first jhana is there is awareness. It's not a zombie state. It's not a... Coma. There's absolutely crisp awareness, there's no thinking, there's no sense of a me, and there's complete awareness of each of these jhana factors as well. So that's part of the, the experience of that. Later, what happens when, the, when there's a progression through the jhanas, the, each, of the, each of the first jhanas begins to drop away as the, as the progression unfolds to the second, third, fourth jhana. To the point, the fourth jhana, All what's remaining of jhana factors is the one-pointedness, the ekagata, and then upekka comes in, which is equanimity. So the quality here is you don't have the same joy and the same bliss qualities, but the equanimity has a kind of smoothness and acceptance of everything is perfect just as it is, this kind of a quality. And again, the, you have the locked-on quality of the um, of the one-pointedness, the Upeka. So, it, again, it's a locked-on and just really a deep sense of <clears throat> everything is just perfect as it is. There's a great contentment. And that really is what allows the movement into, um, moving into, as Tina was talking about, what they call the formless jhanas or formless realms. Because those are the only, the only two jhana factors that continue for the rest of the journey through the, the jhanas. So these, this is just a way to understand how these work and the qualities that they bring and and the support they have. And as Tina was saying, this is also a way that uh, our psychology and our body and our memories and such really get purified. They get purified sometimes through the jhana factor really being present in our consciousness Mm -hmm. and getting steeped in joy, getting steeped in bliss and all the other qualities.
0: And it's it's also important just to note that the jhana factors aren't emotions. So we'll hear sometimes people will, it's just like the word concentration, the word joy or happiness, it's a word we already use. So people may think that, wow, I had a really good sitting. I'm really joyful. And that's a jhana factor. Whereas these are are byproducts of the unification of mind. They're completely byproducts. So once the mind starts unifying and there isn't so much energy that's being burned off and awareness that's being burned off through thinking, Uh, you know, through just repetitive thinking, this is an inherent quality that can shine through that's already there. So it's not an emotion. It's an actual mind state that is is very distinctive and is, is very purifying. And also, just to be clear, a jhana, a full jhana doesn't have to arise for the jhana factors to arise. These are factors that arise in access concentration, on the way to the first jhana. And they can also arise in vipassana. So, you know, if you've experienced any of these things, say, on a longer vipassana retreat, they absolutely apply. It's just that in vipassana, the full jhana absorption isn't possible.
1: It's also, um, and this is a really important point she mentions, that these aren't emotions. So there's a very qualitative difference as being a byproduct of concentration, the developing concentration. And sometimes people will have either learned or, or raise a question with us about taking a jhana factor as their meditative object. For example, the pt will be present, and they'll say, "Well, I, I want to switch objects from knowing the breath here at the Anapana spot to I want to take this pt, this joy, as my object." And you, it, it isn't. Uh, we don't recommend it. We don't encourage it or teach it. Because the jhana factor is a product of the concentration. It's a product <clears throat> of being with the breath here. So as soon as you go off that object and take anything else as an object, the concentration is automatically going to start going down. You're taking the lid off that boiling pot. So the pot is not going to stay boiling. It's not possible. So it's <laughs> very important that even though we might like the, the joy and the bliss, we don't turn to those as an object. That's... Um, It can feel like a good idea to do to really increase but it doesn't actually uh, progress the practice or deepen concentration
0: yeah and there there are other as we mentioned earlier there are there are many different sort of presentations of the of concentration of the jhanas in some traditions when a jhana factor arises that means that the jhana has arisen and that that is not how we learned it and how we we learned it from the side out so in this tradition, really, the non-dual state arising is what indicates that a is arising, not not just the jhana factors. So um, so all this talk about jhana factors and levels of jhana and all that can sometimes raise questions for people about sort of the striving for attainment. And um, this practice has... Part of why the practice was so hidden for so long was because of concern on the ba- on teachers' parts about people getting into a lot of spiritual materialism around it. So we thought that we wouldn't really be doing our jobs if we didn't at least mention this whole question about, you know, am I going to get jhana kind of thing, and um, and it's, there's a real balance. And you know, by the time we we were teaching the practice or we even undertook the practice the the whole possibility of attainments was already out there so you know it was like the horse was out of the barn and we couldn't really bring it back in so there's an you know an understanding that there are these milestones in this practice that everybody knows about whereas in other practices they're more hidden and um and that can create a lot of striving around this practice of trying to get somewhere so we just wanted to be really upfront to address that because it is part of part of this practice you know for better or worse i mean the good news is that when we talk about this practice you know exactly what's going to happen and the practice is extremely clearly laid out so there's no mystery about what's happening you know when we're working with you you know in a daily practice that a lot of this isn't really going to be going to come up. But on retreat, it's, you know, it's part of what people want to know and understand. So that's the good news is that we know exactly what's happening pretty much with the practice. The downside is that there can be a lot of striving, which takes us out of the present moment. And nothing, you know, our true nature isn't arising when we're trying to get somewhere else. It's only arising when we're right here. So it's really essential that we um, find a way within ourselves to hold this possibility of unfoldment of the practice with a maturity that allows us to know that it's there, but also let go of it and to not strive and try to be grasping for some future thing to happen. Because ultimately, the only way that any of that's going to happen is if we're actually in the present moment. You know, it's, it's really, I mean, we think this is part of why the, this practice has been around for 5,000 years, because the only way that it actually works is if you're in the present moment, and to do that, we have to purify a lot of things like desire and aversion and delusion, delusion. you know, because the only way, so people sort of want something, but the wanting in itself is part of, um, if it goes into an unwholesome place, that's part of what has to be purified. So it's it's like the practice actually works our consciousness in a beautiful way where um, it's sort of like a video game for the mind you know or for the consciousness where the only way it actually unfolds is if we are actually being present with the breath and yet there's this possibility of something happening out there that we have to deal with somehow we have to you know come to a point of maturity of how do we hold that and not. Be toppling forward all the time and just striving and trying to get something,
1: and it also can lead to deep disappointment as well. Yeah, because there's an idea of getting it, and then there's the, it gets down to the that polarity of it's either success or failure, or right. this is really the purification of mind is the process.
0: Right, and that's why you know in our teaching we really emphasize that because, um, like in vipassana, nobody's really people aren't so much focusing on the endpoint, there's a sense of there being benefit to the practice just in doing the practice, rather than always trying to get somewhere. So the same thing is true with the Samatha. So we really want to emphasize that the only, it's not as though the only place of of fruits for this practice is with the full jhana of arising. So we'd like to talk a little bit about some of um, Some of the reasons why the practice wasn't taught so openly and this is part of why is that there was concern that um, people wouldn't be able to hold the idea of the attainments with skill and maturity Um, so you know there's a number of reasons that aren't so good to undertake the practice and really having our our wholesome intention for liberation is the reason for the practice there's a great article by Ajahn uh, Tanisaro, who's a very well-known scholar, practitioner in the Theravadan tradition, and, and he talks about pushing the limits between wholesome desire and unwholesome desire. And the wholesome desire is really the desire for our own liberation. And that's really what brings you know most of us to practices, is to have some direct experience of the mystery and to be freer from suffering and to you know be happier which we are when we're not so so much at the mercy of our conditioning all the time so that's the wholesome desire and that's okay that's going to draw that's going to keep us practicing and sitting down every day and dedicating the time to to meditate where it starts shifting into the unwholesome is when we're trying to get somewhere so so the four not good reasons for doing the practice one is is just for the attainments i mean sometimes we hate to say this, but we'll get people come to retreats. And it's sort of like an, you know, um, I don't know, a notch in the belt kind of thing. Like, yeah, I, I got first jhana or something, you know. And we can tell you pretty much it's not going to happen if that's, if that's <laughs> what's being brought in you know.
1: That's what remains.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, coming in, everybody comes in in a different place, but we're just encouraging you, you know, if you do want to take up this practice to really think about your own motivation and what are you coming to it with. So the attainments are really a byproduct of the purification of mind. They're not something we can really sort of go after the way we would try and reach the top of a mountain or something. So that's one reason another is is the bliss states believe it or not a lot of people you know this is again part of why the practices were left for people who had already were already fairly advanced in asia was that there was concern people were going to just try and have have bliss states um, as part of why they would do this practice and that is something that can happen i mean this this practice, it's really amazing. We'll, we'll have people come in retreats who've never sat more than 45 minutes. And in four or five days, we'll be sitting for two hours with ease, with no physical pain, things like that. It's, it's really incredible. So, you know, there is a way where um, it's like there's a reward in our own consciousness when we actually are present and we start letting go of some of the conditioning, part of the jhana factors arising is, is a natural sort of, um, it's like the spiritual goodies that keep us going. But at some point, those become, those become gross too. So the practice really purifies itself in a way. But coming to the practice just for that, our advice would be do the drugs.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh- I think it's we'll a lot faster. <laughs>
0: yeah. May, no, that's my, not actually advice. So my, we, we are practicing Sila here. But my, my I guess mean, <laughs> is there
1: may be people here who have already tried that route, <laughs> and that's why they're here.
0: But really, if that's the only reason, they, there's really meditation isn't necessarily the best route to that endpoint. So it's not a good reason. It's not a wholesome reason. And it's, it's, um, it's a concern, and it's part of why these practices were hidden for so long. Another reason, which isn't so much um, predominant in the West, but in Asia, it is actually somewhat predominant, is the development of psychic powers. So some of you may think this is funny, but it's a very serious business in Asia. And if you read some of the classical texts like the Maga, there's um one must practice the jhanas in order to develop these, these supranormal powers. So... Um, there was a the thought that one need a lot of maturity before the world should be subject to somebody with supernormal powers. So, you know, there was this was part of why the practices were, were kept um, secret. And, and this was actually tested with a very um, advanced yogi named Deepama, who some of you may have read books about her. She was a very well-known Theravadan teacher and practitioner, and they thought they would test out these theories that are presented in the in the um, texts and see if they actually worked. And they had a, a whole group of um, scholars from from uh, a university in India tested it, and they found that she actually could do things like bilocate. And, but that's another story, so we'll, we'll go on from there. But the, it, this is just to give you some sense of the history of the practice. This is part of it. And then the last... Um, The last reason is to do this practice without going on to other things like vipassana you know this is part of the concern was that people would just stop at the samatha and not go on to the vipassana practice so
1: which we don't advocate
0: yeah so really we feel that the the sangha of people in in the west and in asia as well are mature enough to hold this practice with maturity and with skill and to know that there are attainments possible, but that really, it ultimately does come down to to focusing here and to being with our breath in the present moment and just to letting our own unfoldment happen as it does.
1: Why don't we turn to some questions?
0: Yeah.
2: Go ahead.
1: I have a question and a comment. One, your use of the word equanimity earlier on question is: Is your use of the word equanimity the same as I heard a month ago, or six months ago, or seven months ago in this room, in terms of the the, the use of the word equanimity? That's the question. And the comment is about doing drugs. Baba Ramdas and Richard Alfred Richard Alfred spent thousands and millions of dollars of his father's money in search of that want of doing drugs.
0: Right.
1: The question, though.
0: Mm-hmm. So the first question was, is, is the equanimity we're talking about the same? Yes. So the word equanimity is used a lot in, in Theravadan Buddhism. There's a Brahma Vihara called equanimity. You know, there's, there's different uses, applications of the term equanimity. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about it as a jhana factor, mm-hmm. it's a, in this case, it's a, it's a byproduct of the concentration that arises naturally in the mind when the unification happens. So, when we're doing equanimity, say as a Brahma Vihara, we're really cultivating, it's more of a heart quality of understanding and being at peace with what's arising in the world and in our relationships. So, those two descriptions, I mean, it's kind of pointing to the same thing, but they aren't identical. Okay, thank you. And the other question, I don't know if you want to, about,
1: about the use of drugs. That was more of a comment. <laughs> more yes, comment. yes. Yeah.
0: We, we don't actually advocate it, just to no. be clear.
2: Go ahead. Um, so what I'm hearing, and, and not, if you agree, I mean, please let me know. What I'm trying is, this is sequential. This is a sequential process, and um, you're advising us not to jump around between diphthosa and the concentration. So can you, if, is that what I said, do you agree with what I'm saying?
0: It's sequential. Do you want to reframe for yeah. the, for yeah, the, the co- recording?
1: Yeah, the, the, her comment is she's asking whether we're advocating for not moving back and forth between Samatha and Vipassana, yeah. right? And again, the, f- the first rule is each one of us is the decider. We're the captain of our own ship, so... Right. It, but you. for us, we, we don't... W- again, we'll, we'll do blocks of meditation for a month or some period of time where we'll say, I'm going to do Samatha for this month and then I'm going to do Vipassana for this month or I'm going to do something else. So we do it in that way because it allows much more of a sustained deep dive. But you can do something different if you wish.
2: Okay, so then, having said that, um, how can we... I, I come to Spirit Rock as often as I can. And this is my setting, really. Right. And so, if we're coming here and we want to undertake this uh, concentration meditation, is there a way we can do that in this setting?
1: So the question is, she comes to Spirit Rock regularly, and and if she's interested in doing the concentration meditation, I'm assuming the question is, what support will there be for doing that?
2: Yeah. Or can we sit in a Vipassana setting and concentrate, do the meditation the way we're talking about today? Mm
0: -hmm. Right. Yeah, well, so can you continue to do concentration meditation if you're you're attending events that are more Vipassana-oriented? um it's up to you i mean a day long and so your home practice of course you can do anything you want a lot of the teachings of theravada and buddhism like you know i attended the new year's retreat so i don't know if anybody here was at that retreat but it was a vipassana retreat i, I practiced vipassana at that retreat but the talks were about the seven factors of, of awakening which you know is And wonderful. I mean, I loved it. They were great talks and they apply equally to concentration as they do to Vipassana. They were speaking about them as they applied to, to Vipassana. But, you know, most of those teachings are just as relevant for for Samatha as they are for Vipassana. So, I mean, you all may not know whether they're relevant or not. That's kind of the downside. But a lot of the teachings like, you know, so much of what is taught is relevant to both. So, it's not really as much as an either-or as it might sound like. Um, And we've known people who will continue to go to to things, maybe even go to a retreat and practice Samatha. The problem is that, you know, the teachers, I don't know how they might feel about it. You'd want to check ahead of time and see. Um, But if you're going to day-longs or your sitting groups, you can really practice whatever you want and it's not going to be an issue. And I I doubt that the teachers would object to that because, I mean, Spirit Rock invited us here, you know. So there are concentration retreats taught all the time in Spirit Rock. There's a huge support for concentration meditation within this community. So I don't think, um, it's not as much of an either or as you might think.
1: The, the, the The one downside is that Unfortunately, there isn't uniformity in how it's taught and how it's supported. Yeah. So you can go to different retreats on concentration and get different instructions and different interpretations. So unfortunately, yeah. we, we don't have a national uh, or international uniformity yet on that. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: Yes. How does uh, concentration and meditation relate to mindfulness and, and four foundations of mindfulness?
1: So the question: How does concentration relate to mindfulness, and the four foundations of mindfulness? mindfulness practice. The
0: mindfulness practice. Yeah. Well, mindfulness is vipassana practice. So, just yeah. So, so those are synonymous. I mean, that's what I was saying earlier that you know, fortunately or unfortunately, vipassana within the West has become sort of the mindfulness tradition. You know, um, so. Uh, The Four Foundations of Mindfulness really apply to Vipassana and not to Samatha. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You mentioned earlier
2: that um, metta is under the umbrella of samatha. If I'm practicing metta, am I practicing
1: samatha? Mm -hmm. Right, it's a concentration practice. So the question
0: is, is metta a samatha practice? Yes, and all the things we were saying about jhana factors and everything else applies just the same to metta. Yeah, it's, is a little different because there's a lot more going on. It's a lot busier, kind of, but um, ultimately it's, all the, everything applies that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm.
2: Over here, go ahead. So um, I'm thinking about the metaphor of the, the water, being in the water, and it seems like, I, I don't know if this is wrong, but it seems like Vipassana is, is much more on the surface like just being present of everything happening. And so I'm thinking if you start out with Vipassana, it's good practice because it's mindfulness and it can be purifying, but to actually have the deep insights, I don't know if this is what you guys are saying, you have to go deep, get concentrated, get that laser-like concentration and then come back to Vipassana. Is that what I'm hearing you say?
1: So so the question is about uh, the relationship of Vipassana and Samatha, the Vipassana, can support the being with things and allow, kind of, I guess, kind of settling, and then there can be a deep dive with samatha, and then coming back. Um, it's... Uh, I, I get your your logic on it. It's it's a little bit different than that, in that... I mean, it may be that, that you find it helpful to do vipassana, to settle, and then mm-hmm. to turn to the samatha practice, concentration practice. But again, both practices have the momentary concentration, and access concentration. So, the jhāna factors can be present in both the meditations. The only distinction is that with the concentration, the samatha practice, there's the possibility of fruition, or jhāna arising. So that's something that, that won't happen in Vipassana ever, because of the, the practice isn't intended to do that. It's a different uh, different animal. But so, in the, in the surf zone metaphor, the really jhāna, it's, it's really out in the still water, which we might call deep access there can be the, the call to do a deep dive and really dive deep into uh, the quality of what the Buddha call the unconditioned and really have that tra- uh, transcendent experience that can happen.
0: Yeah, and just, just to, to build on that, I mean, the, in the tradition we learn this and in like the the Visuddhimagga, which is one of the texts that's kind of like a training manual for meditation within Theravada Buddhism, they start with Samatha, they don't start with Vipassana. And like our teacher, that's where he starts everybody. And it's only if somebody has trouble doing it that then he'll switch them immediately to Vipassana. Because of what we were saying, where if the mind stream gets purified, then theoretically it'd be easier to do Vipassana. But, you know, in the West, I started, I did Vipassana for 15 or 20 years before I ever did Samatha. And it's worked out fine. So, you know, it, it really, Our our advice is do what your heart is drawn to. Right. And each of them is going to help the other. Right.
2: And, and were you also saying that probably, you think that probably the Buddha did samatha first, right? And then
0: the, that's it's, the it's, Historically, that's fairly well documented. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the, I mean,
1: yeah, the Buddha did samatha first, most definitely, and continued throughout his life to practice, uh, even to the point that and, and his deathbed, that's what he practiced, was the jhana yeah. practices. So he found it... Yeah, useful.
0: I mean, that was going back to this yogi's question when I was on the retreat. Should we do what the Buddha did? And he did He did the samatha, the whole thing, first before he really created the vipassana. Mm-hmm. Sir?
2: Could, could you uh, kind of elaborate a little bit more on that question in terms of uh, the distinction between purification of the mind and, <clears throat> and
1: purification of view? But what, what exactly is the relationship of mind to view? Mm-hmm. So the question is about the difference between purification of mind and purification of view. Well, the purification mm-hmm. of mind is really what we've talked about today quite a bit. It's really the purification of the individual consciousness. So we're really with ourselves, and as we are, we're both cultivating a neutrality towards our own patterning and compulsions. At the same time, that's the transformative quality. And the transcendent quality is we're orienting towards, again, what the Buddha called the unconditioned or the ground of being, whatever the term you like. But we're orienting towards the mystery at the same time. So both of those are a form of purification of mind, but we find that they work together in the Samatha practice. And the Vipassana, the, the the view is, it's really the what we're looking at, what we're seeing. It's taking that purified mind in this example and really... The relationship to the outside world, really seeing what the, the truth of what things are.
0: Yeah, it's the paśana. We're really turning towards phenomena, what, whether what? it's internal phenomena or external phenomena. With the with the samatha, we're purifying the awareness that turns towards that. What, why is there a distinction between the two? Why, why are they well, all this separate? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there are those traditions. We have an article from a, a, a monk that we really. Appreciate Ajahn, Ajahn Chandako, um, Chanda, yeah. who has, uh, 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 he's the abbot of a monastery in New Zealand. He's in the Thai forest tradition, yeah, and Ajahn. he's written a wonderful article called A Honed and Heavy Axe that kind of gets at this exact question where, you know, the Buddha, it's hard to tell exactly what he meant by a lot of things, and this is where the, the Vasudhi Maga came in and really laid out exactly more specifics about the practices, which course is controversial as well but some people think you do both and they're two feet walking up a hill mm-hmm. you, that they aren't as separate as we're making it sound mm-hmm. so you know y- you need concentration to have any insight and you have to have insight to be free enough to have concentration so there's a way where they you know we're teaching it separately mainly because there's been so much teaching on vipassana, and we feel like we're sort of balancing that out a little bit because people want to know, but they aren't quite as separate as it really sounds. Yeah,
1: they're they're complementary, sir. Hi. Right, so just to clarify, are the eight jhanas are those like um, specific discernible states of consciousness, or is it a more abstract concept than
0: that? So the question is: Are the eight jhanas specific states of consciousness, or is it more? Abstract or ambiguous? Yes, they're very distinct. Yeah,
1: and, and, and they're uniform, me- meaning that you know, if we have five people that in First John is arising and come into interview, there's going to be a lot of common language that they're going to share that we don't talk about publicly. It's sort of a quality control. We we, we <laughs> know we're going to hear certain things from them if, if that's experienced, and uh, and and that seems to be true. So within, within them, there, there's a very different, let's say, flavor. It's not actually a flavor, but if we call it a flavor, you get a sense of what it is. Because for one thing, mm-hmm. I mentioned the five jhanas, and as you go through the first four jhanas, they drop off. So by the fourth jhana, you have just the two. You just have the, the one-pointedness and equanimity. The jhana so, factors. So the, the jhana factor. So that's going kind to of have a different flavor than when there's piti and sukha, when there's joy and bliss. The, the, the quality will be different. So you can see even there, there's a different... Uh,
0: and then the upper jhana is the practice that one, what one is doing in each is very different, so it's, um, it's very clear, yeah.
2: Yeah? Yeah, I have a question. Um, if one is, say, on a retreat and for a longer time where one is doing the practice, and you're always doing this spot here, right, so you're always, you're continually doing that, and so factors may arise, like the jhanic factors may arise, for Shana may arise. My question is, do, do I keep always my concentration here but because I might have a, a Vipassana feel to look at what's happening, like if one right. goes into a state of, say, joy or bliss. W- that would seem bigger than watching here, the concentration.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: And a pull might be to go <laughs> like into more examination of what that would be. And forget about this piece right. right. So what is your uh,
1: teaching on Sure. That? So the question is, <laughs> if she's focusing on the anapana spot, the breath crossing, and jhana factors are arising, she may feel a keen sense of wanting to investigate and explore, <laughs> um, particularly the Piti and the Sukha, I'm guessing. <laughs> and uh, what about that? <laughs> and I did mention earlier that that is a temptation that people have. And you can certainly do that, but we can guarantee that when you do that, the concentration is the lids coming off the pot and you'll be able to examine it for some period of time and then it will be gone and you'll be you know the, the whole process starts back up again okay. so but but with the progression of jhana what's great about the way that that we learned it and we teach it is we only have to focus here on the breath crossing the whole practice unfolds we don't need to do anything else and first jhana arises when first jhana arises we're no longer aware of this but there's a there's a different you know but but the journey from from first putting our awareness on the anapana spot or the breath on the anapana spot to first jhana it all happens naturally by just staying there so it's it's in a lot of ways that's what we say it's a very simple practice we make it complicated because of our our psychology really
0: well and and part of what gets purified there is um, spiritual desire so you know i, I mean ultimately the practice sort of purifies everything. And if we get enamored with something and go over there, then the concentration wanes, and now we're, we're back down and hindrances are coming up, and we get to experience what that was like. So. Well,
1: and they're suffering. <laughs> <'Cause> now <laughs> the, we now suffer. The, and now the PT's gone. I really liked it. I want it back. <laughs> I'm the one that went there. You know, and you get to purify that. Until that gets purified, it's going to be hard for concentration to develop again. Because
0: so w- we're also out of the present moment, because we're wanting something that's not in there. In the future. So right. it all, yeah. it all does yeah. itself. I mean, it's a self, it's a self-operating video game in your consciousness. Is yeah. really what it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's a wonderful <laughs> system. That's why we like it. Yeah. Um,
0: so
2: what can we do after taking a one-day workshop? I mean, it seems like you <laughs> might want more support or more. Uh-huh.
1: You know, uh, to learn more. Sure. So what's, what's next to so the question. So the question
0: is, what can we do after taking a one-day workshop?
1: Well, the, the first easy answer is you can certainly take this up as a home practice for a period of time. Mm-hmm. In terms of sustained practice, we, we do offer at least a two-week retreat every year. We find mm-hmm. the two-week retreat is really necessary for a deep enough progression for people. And um, coincidentally, we're doing one at the end of March up at Cloud <laughs> Mountain, in, which is in Washington, one, about an hour north of Portland. We do them there. And then we're also doing a Brahma Vihara's in October. And if you're around, we're doing one in Tuscany this year. we have been invited to Italy. So if you want to come to Tuscany for eight <laughs> days in September, which we hear is the best time of year there, which you're very welcome to t- come to Tuscany.
0: Yeah, and there's also, you know, there's talks online and our book. And, you know, really taking it on as a daily practice would be the next easy step.
1: Yeah, it really is.
0: It's It's, you know, it's pretty... It's a great daily practice. We have people who never do a retreat and only do it as daily practice and find huge benefit.
1: And you have to really listen to your heart where you're called. So when it seems like it's time to do, it's great, time to do something else. That's, you know, because we've really got to be in contact with our, uh, really, the heart of our practice and really what's the right thing for us to unfold. Yeah. Yep.
0: So maybe one more and then we'll take a break.
2: I I just wanted to.
0: Well, it's it's more um, insight into our own patterning. Is it's a big piece. A lot of long-term vipassana practitioners have come to our retreats and said, "Wow, I, you know, I have learned. I've had so much insight into my own consciousness on this retreat that it's, it's maybe more than the vipassana retreats. You know, that kind of thing." So there's a certain kind of insight. I mean, in vipassana, the word insight has a couple of different meanings. One is insight into the the um, bare nature of phenomena, which is more of a, uh, a liberative kind of insight. There's also insights into our own functioning, which is what people mostly have on retreats. And um, so, in, so for example, <laughs> when we are teaching the Samatha practice, and especially on retreat, if somebody has just a huge hindrance attack, and they just can't be on the object, and it's just like in their face, we'll actually have them do some investigation to understand more the difference is That as soon as they can be back with the breath, we have them come back to the breath. So it's not the way, it's not handled the way it would be on a vipassana retreat. But basically, we're having them use vipassana on our on the samatha retreat because it's appropriate. You know, they're like like this other gentleman was saying. It's not like there's this hard line down the middle. You know, you really need to be able to have some stability to go and investigate you know, why am I suffering so much? What, what hot coal am I holding on to? And that is really using a, more of an insight practice. And then we come back to the somatis. So,
1: and, and there are people who will, who will employ the investigation. They'll, they'll have something come up and decide they want to investigate it and go off the object and do that. And of course, they're free to do that, but they understand that it's not, you know, you keep taking the lid off the pot, it's not going to boil very easily. So right. on retreat, it's, it's, again, as Tina said, we'll, we'll direct people to do that specifically when there's, it, it, it's like such a big hindrance attack, they can't do anything else but be with the hindrance when it's just so present then it's skillful to do, to do so, as Tina said.
0: Right, and then those insights can create more, more freedom where we can maybe see into, you know, if I've been sitting here for three days just, you know, with the person next to me driving me insane, I can <laughs> see that I do this at home and maybe there's some space to have a different, or it, something sort of gets broken through, where, where the person can have some freedom, where that pattern isn't just so compulsive anymore. So so this is how the insight becomes a way that we can then do the samatha practice more deeply.
1: Why don't we take a break?
0: Yeah. So we'll um, we'll Let's take a, yeah we'll take a 15 minute break. Again, we we would encourage you to maintain your silence unless you really need to speak with someone, and we'll be back at 2.50.
2: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.